Welcome to the 21st Century Schizoid Podcast. I am your host, Cooper Cherry. Today we have Sarah Hay joining me. Um, I think it's a nice uh, treat to have Sarah on today because actually she is in the process of starting her own podcast. And so I thought it would be an awesome way to get her involved in the world by coming on this podcast and kind of getting a feel for it before she dives in, uh, dives into her own project. Um, one, and then uh, Sarah's going to primarily, I think, focus on social justice is kind of the overall theme and, and project, or I guess the, uh, yeah. the sort of area of focus for your project, right? Yes, that uh, is, is, is correct. I'm very open to where um, it goes, but I kind of have a general idea. But this is, um, this is a great intro. And I really <laughs> appreciate you uh, having me over today. This is great. Of course. Um, so before we dive into um, some topics that we've kind of discussed, I wanted to bring up something that I had mentioned to you as well and, and something that the listeners may not be aware of is that So I, this week I had a... Uh, potential guests that I had emailed and contacted, you know, inviting them to come on the podcast and, you know, have a talk. And they wrote back via email declining because they said that schizoid was a derogatory term and that they considered, you know, they didn't want to participate in a program like that um, since they considered themselves to be an ally of, I guess, you know, mentally or I guess psychologically you know, people suffer suffering from those types of uh, psychological issues, which I definitely absolutely respect that position. Yeah. Um, but I was, I gotta say, honestly, I was, I was super bummed out and, and just yeah. kind of like taken aback by, by that reading on the, on the podcast title. So Sarah, I want to get your unadulterated opinion first sure. and then, then I'll say my bit and then we can move on into, into the meat of our discussion. Yeah, um, I have always um, kind of treated things as in language is very important, and the words that you use are very important. Um, they mean several different things to different people. Um, for instance, there are like racial jokes, things that I care about. Um, I'm a little bit more sensitive to when people say jokes, um, especially with you know interracial jokes or um, jokes about a particular color of skin and. Things like that are, you know, I'm definitely more susceptible to um, to being sensitive of those of those things. So I can kind of understand where this person's thinking if that's really important to them, or they um, know someone's personally who goes through things like that. Um, so I mean, I can I can understand, I can see without directly having any any communication with them. Right. So I don't know. Um, I think. You know, just kind of knowing where the name came from for you, I don't, I don't think that there was a, any like ill, ill will towards um, that name or anything like that. But um, and I can actually kind of see, you know, looking at what um, the word schizoid kind of means um, as a personality disorder, it actually kind of jives with what your podcast does. Um, but I definitely like, I see, I see both sides. Um, but I think that's kind of up to the listeners and up to like what you, how you want to carry this podcast in the future. Right. What I, I also think that I, I absolutely value the power of words and I think that they absolutely carry a lot. You know, power is, is communicated through words. 
what you call and refer to things and people and places and all of that, all of that does matter. And that certainly has an impact. So I, I'm not opposed to changing the title of the podcast. And kind of my first thought was from a pragmatic standpoint that, you know, if someone, if I'm going to lose out on a guest, especially someone, obviously if I invited them on my podcast, then I valued what they had to say or their work. And for that to be, you know, something that's going to dissuade someone from participating or listening, you know, offhand, that was kind of my first thought was, you know, I, I should change this if, if that's the case, because ultimately if you're not going to engage with my ideas or project, you know what I mean? That's, that's not going to hurt. That's not hurting you. Like I'm just a little kind of rinky dink podcaster trying to, trying to do my thing. So, um, I'm definitely not opposed to changing the name of the podcast. I think I'd even kind of talk to you about some alternative titles and I won't go into that part of it, uh, at this time. But I would like to at least give a little bit of background and context for why I have chosen the name Schizoid for the podcast. And um, I just would also I guess, like to say that I am someone, I think, who values, you know, the fight for social justice and for and someone who identifies with oppressed peoples of all stripes, whatever the case may be, um, because I don't know, I've, I've always been sort of an outsider myself. You know, you might not look at me and think that, you know, I, I have all the all the privileges of, you know, a white cis male in the society. So, um, you know, I feel like maybe I had, a you know, I had a, an emotional response to this criticism and I was thinking, you know, maybe some element of, of that is having some of my uh, my privilege in that regard checked to some degree. <laughs> but then also also started to think, oh, there's what's crazy about this topic is there are just so many different angles yes. and I don't think that there's a clear like right or you know what I mean yeah. to, to all them. Like there's a multiplicity of viewpoints and, and things that go into this. Um, but I also was thinking, man, that was felt like it was an under kind of attacking the entire project itself as well. And kind of something that I've put a lot of effort and energy and time and money and, and so forth into this project with the goal of sort of presenting a a voice that I think is unheard on the on the left. I always listen. I listen to a lot of podcasts, you know, kind of popular like the Joe Rogans, the Sam Harris, etc. Uh, and you know, they sort of will often straw man leftists or you know I mean, people that have these types of concerns. So I really felt like um, the <laughs> And you may not be familiar with this too, but the, so they, let's see, the, uh, the cultural Marxists and the postmodern, uh, postmodern, what is it? The, uh, postmodern cult. So oh. that's kind of who, who I'm sort of representing in this, um, in this thing to, to kind of, uh, kind of yeah, I don't know if you're familiar with Jordan B. Peterson, but hmm. he kind of. About to say, I don't, uh, that doesn't ring a bell. I'd love to learn about that. Rails against cultural Marxism and postmodernity and the, the theorists and so forth that I have always been an interest of mine. But to delve back into the sort of the genesis of where, I, you know, why I titled this podcast, the 21st Century Schizoid Podcast, there is a pretty famous progressive rock band named King Crimson. Uh, they started in the late 60s, and one of their uh, first hit songs was 21st Century Schizoid Man. And, you know, sort of kind of a, a Vietnam 
influenced or protest not i wouldn't say it was a necessarily a protest song straight up but kind of commenting on i think the the sort of madness of this war of this sort of you know imperialist type war Mm -hmm. against communism what have you so that was a a major influence of the name obviously but i also was influenced by the work of let's see if i get these names pronounced correctly but uh there's a gilles deleuze and felix or fili i'm not sure how you pronounce felix in french I don't know if if X has its own special (laughs) pronunciation. I don't know. But uh, Deleuze and Watari uh, are very well-known and prominent uh, postmodern, post-structuralist, you know, what-have-you theorists, and they wrote a couple of volumes together, um, one being Anti-Oedipus, the other being 1,000 Plateaus. Those were kind of the first parts of the title, but the subtitle of each work was Schizophrenia and Capitalism. And so that was sort of the context that I was coming from was one of this in this era of postmodernity this the schizoid is sort of very relevant like the times are schizoid like we're bombarded by you know we're inundated with so much information through the electronic media smartphones Twitter Facebook you know what I mean constantly being advertised to sold to there's you know entertainment itself has gotten so niche and um, we're sort of siloed in our in our media consumption and news consumption all, all of that sort of stuff I would agree and I, I I see the connection I think that's what one of the things that I was drawn to when you had told me about this dilemma that you had been faced with um, I kind of did a little digging and I like I said I saw the the one side of just being sensitive to those types of words and, and and that type of reference but I also saw the connection between the word and its meaning and what you were trying to do here and your inspiration and I can see how that would almost feel personal because there's a lot of inspiration of what of your craft and what you're doing and what you're creating associated with those ideas um so I think Anything that's ever been done that changed people's minds or changed the world, you know, if we're going just a huge context, I mean, it always shook things up a little bit. Um, and I definitely think that's just something um, that you're going to have to mull over, like whether, <laughs> you know, just make a personal choice in that. And I, I, yeah, I think anything that's ever been groundbreaking or anything that's ever just truly, um, you know, blazed a trail or blazed a path for something um, truly incredible, um, kind of ruffled feathers and kind of... Um, and, and just that's the nature of truly great work. So I think that's something that you're going to have to think about as well. Because um, if that's something that you really relate with and that's something that you're really connected to, then hold on to that. You know? Yeah. And so I think that's important as well. I think it really does communicate sort of the ethos of the entire kind of project. And, you know, in, in my mind, schizoid is not, I mean, it's a very kind of, you know what I mean? It's not a common word that sort of, in the colloquially uh, used, if you will. Um, You know what I mean? It's something like, you know, if if I called the podcast the crazy idiot podcast or, you know what I mean? Something that's been, you know, a commonly used pejorative term Mm -hmm. or something like that. You know, that's a little bit different. And I struggled to, I was trying to come up with a metaphor or, you know, an example that would, you know, like if I, here's a, or an, an excuse me, an analogy that would really work and like clear, clearly show, okay, 
you know what I mean? In, in, in this context, this is definitely something that you should change, right? But I really had a hard time coming up with anything that was similar, you know what I mean? I don't know, it's just such a, I feel like, you know what I mean? It's sort of a clinical term or like a... Sp- mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, clinical, I think uh, technical, um, those type of words um, do a good job of explaining that. And um, even just going over like just the definition of, you know, when it comes to like schizoid personality disorders, like with its official name, it talks about um, this being being an outsider and being and not being able to really relate um, with with other people and having trouble establishing deep relationships with other people and that's kind of are the characteristics that describe this personality disorder and I I see the connection in terms of like that's how you've felt um, in your social situations growing up and that's um, something that you want to reflect and if you're searching for an analogy in that way um, but then again like I don't um, I'm not super sensitive to what that means and what that means for a person who actually has that or um, knowing someone that's gone through that. So I definitely see both sides and I, um, I provide no help in this decision (laughs) besides it's up to you. Um, And I definitely think um, in a very similar situation, like what I want to talk about, I want to talk about quite frankly, how white men have written history and how there's a lot of history that's been lost for people of color, for women, um, indigenous peoples, um, and such immigrants. And I think, you know, the first word that comes to mind is whitewashing, but it would be very, I would ruffle a lot of feathers if I called, if I had whitewashing in the name of my podcast, but I think, but it would be accurate. Oh, I think it's, I think that's a great name actually. <laughs> oh, well, thanks. And, um, and I've, and that's the thing is you're, you're talking about wanting to find other analogies or another, other ways of connecting with those ideas. And I'm actually struggling to find anything else that just completely wraps up like what I want to, you know, talk about and say. So I definitely think if you've found that connection, like schizoid really embodies and just, just encaptures what you're trying to talk about, then, you know, blaze that trail. Yeah. I mean, I guess that you kind of bring into mind sort of the personal element too, is that, I really sort of identify with that condition as well. I would not be surprised, would not be shocked if, I mean, this kind of <laughs> hit the nail on the head, so to speak, when I was kind of looking it up to the disorder itself. So I don't know anybody that knows me. Um, I know I have some kind of some friends that know me pretty well that listen to this podcast. They would, <laughs> I think they might agree that um, definitely something off about me. I don't know exactly what that is. Maybe I'm projecting, but I don't know. Um, I just felt like I, that is me. I am the 21st century schizoid man trying to negotiate this crazy world that we're living in and trying to figure out, you know, a a sort of moral pathway through life and how to structure my life and how to, you know, do the right thing and and be a good person. Yeah. And I think that's what ultimately, yeah, I think that's what any human, you know, is, ultimately trying to do in life is just find their place find what they love um and if that's something that yeah if that's something that represents and embodies that then you know i don't know if you're making your decision right now <laughs> as we're talking about it but i think um those are all things that need to be considered as well right um, but i mean that is unfortunate you know that person um took offense and I definitely see that and I empathize right. and I and I feel for that. Um, but I definitely think like if you have certain ideas and there's a certain way that you want to project that, then 
um, you know, that's up to you. It's totally up to you. Right. And I mean, to some, to some degree, right. It's like, I, it's not my place to dismiss other people's feelings about being offended by something. You know what I mean? It doesn't matter that I'm not offended by it. Right. Because you, the person that uses epithets or pejorative words at other, throws those at other people isn't obviously they're not offended by them. Right. So like it, my feelings on the matter are, are somewhat irrelevant and from that standpoint, you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. I think that's a jump on the other side. Right. There's, It's definitely valid. I just see the world as when one big giant gray situation. I've, I've never been one to just, there's very few situa- situations where I've been like, this is right and this is wrong. And this is black and white. This is how, like with all situations, I normally see both and contemplate for hours and hours before ever coming to <laughs> not even a definitive solution or decision. So I think this is definitely one that will take lots of pondering, lots and lots of pondering. I think that's actually a great segue. I will I will close out this part of the discussion by just saying that I'm leaning towards keeping the title as as is, at least for the foreseeable future. Um, you know, I'll, I'll see how it goes. I'll think on it more. It's something that I'm definitely considering. I'm not going to die on the hill of of being an ableist or, you know what I mean? Even someone perceiving the title as such and not want, wanting to participate in, in the in the project ultimately. So, um, but I, I think that's interesting given, and I don't know, am I, I might be spoiler alerting us, but you do, you are, you do consider yourself to be a Christian. So I thought it was interesting yes. that you're injecting that bit about gray morality. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, that's actually just one thing that I have to wrestle with on right. a day-to-day basis. Um, and I just, my heart, my mind, my life has always been guided towards just compassion and always feeling for both sides and understanding where both sides are coming from. Because ultimately, um, if you're truly you know, following Jesus and, and, and believing that he's the only thing that's truly good, right? Then, how, then who are we to say that this is good and this is bad and this is this person's good and this is bad? And I think we jump to that a lot. Right. Um, and it's so interesting for me to see people not, you know, of faith and not of faith to be so quick to condemn, to be so quick to just apply what you think about this person's situation simply because you think it. And um, I definitely wrestle with that within um, multiple church communities that I've been a part of and just having to stifle, excuse me, stifle and not have anyone. Um, there's very few people that I've really been able to relate with. And um, and that's also something I talk to God a lot about, <laughs> you know, on a daily basis. So, um, but yeah, that's that's very true about me. I, had, I said I was going to be done with this conversation, but you just made me think too that you know what I mean? That was, I I think, a good analogy or corollary is that I felt very righteous about myself, about, oh, I'm, you know what I mean? I'm an ally. I'm someone who supports social justice. I'm not one of, I'm not one of those people, right? And so when I got this feedback that, oh, well, nope, <laughs> yeah. oh, it's like, you who, let he with the, he without sin cast the first stone. I don't know. I, I That's butchered okay. that a little bit. It's fine. I've, you know, been a believer for years and years. And I've, you know, knowing, um, knowing scripture, knowing the Bible is definitely a weaker point for me, something I'm working on, but no, I can't just spurt out. I'm a conceptual person. So when yeah, it comes I'm kind to, of the same. so I can understand 
um, concepts in the Bible and like what reading into what Jesus is trying to teach. But when it comes to like, you know, saying word for word something that's um kind of a weaker point so don't feel bad it's fine i'm pretty sure it's let he with who was with the without sin cast the first stone and so i thought that was a good lesson for me as well to like be very aware of be a little bit more aware of my blind spots when it comes Mm -hmm. to these sorts of things you know what i mean other than just thinking oh i'm I'm Mr. Righteous over here that's sitting on my t- tower and I'll judge everyone else who are all, you know, we're all sort of flawed and trying to negotiate the world as difficult as that is and increasingly, <laughs> increasingly so, right? Yes. And I even, you know, even now thinking that I'm educated about certain social justice issues and, and thinking that I know, um, and then even just day-to-day interactions um, with my husband, I catch myself or thinking or feeling or wanting to say things that are inappropriate. And I'm like, wait, <laughs> oh, how have I read all these books? And it's still, and I, cause it's, you know, these ideas are socially constructed. They're ingrained. Right. Um, and it's not just within my lifetime. It's when it's within centuries. Um, and so I, I had definitely have to take a step back and, um, and it's, it's a check all the time. But I think part of that is recognizing and in, in realizing when those checks are happening and to accept and to learn um, but I think it's a journey. I think it's a constant journey of just discoveries. I, I absolutely agree. And to go back to sort of my background, I grew up in the church, um, the Southern Baptist denomination, and kind of like a a very evangelical, um, fundamentalist sort of approach to scripture and the Bible and, and, and church and so forth. So that's definitely my background. And I think, you know, even though I, you know, sort of will call myself a nihilist or something like that, I think that my moral framework is still ultimately one that's in line with, with, with the teachings of Christ ultimately, you know what I mean? Which I think is kind of funny. It's like, I have this, and I've said this, I I guess before on the podcast that it's like, I have this like one level, I have these compartmentalized beliefs. Like here is my like ultimate, what I believe about the world from this like maybe 30,000 foot view. But then I have like my practical approach to everyday life because my 30,000 foot view doesn't really (laughs) provide a great way for actually living in the day-to-day world Mm -hmm. and so forth. Yeah, no, that's, that's really interesting. And I, um, we've had a little bit of, um, you know, back and forth about um, growing up in that setting. And I swung from one side to the other. So I grew up Catholic. I mean, from baptized as a little baby to um, going all the way through confirmation. Just, and that was a very ritualized, very, you do this because that's what Catholics do. And that's what you do at this age is you go to confirmation and you do your first communion and you um, accept the sacraments. And then this is what you do to become a, uh, an adult in the church and um, it was very just because this is what tradition is and this is what you do. And they're really, and I never realized that there was no personal relationship. I didn't actually feel anything with Jesus. And it wasn't until I moved to Mobile, Alabama, where I was exposed to, um, the more Baptist side of things. And I think I learned from both. So my very, like, um, I still have a hard time in church, like raising my hands in worship because everything was so reverent in mass. And so just like hymns and very, very, um, just very traditional that I still have a hard time when I go to very modern churches. I go to one now that um, it's like the stage is set up really 
dramatically in terms of like there's lighting and there's like a band and just the whole setup and I still there's still some part of me that is uncomfortable but it's because I grew up in such a like a reverent setting with like all these statues and candles and just quietness and then going from that to like having a personal relationship with Jesus and what that meant for me and I think I've been influenced by both and I still carry elements of both um, but I definitely, I see that, that it, it really does affect how you see the world and how you see other people. Um, and that's just what happens. Everything is just so socially constructed and so interwoven. Um, but I definitely see that. Interesting. Oh, so my stomach is like making weird noises. Is that what that what... was? <laughs> yes. It's like, this is random. <laughs> what right. is going on? Hopefully that's not too loud. So, uh, but dang, made me lose my train of thought. Um, God, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. oh, I know what I was going to say. That um, so in our church, we weren't quite the type where they were like even to raise a hand. I don't know. It was still kind of like very probably not the same level of like a ritualistic or maybe not as heavily like grounded in ritual. I think when you get into the more like people that are raising their hands and so forth, they that was more like a of a charismatic like I don't know, sort of pentecostal leaning not that there weren't i think baptists or what have you that would would do so and whatnot mm-hmm. i think that's an interest that'd be something that would be interesting to study i think oh my god it was just the differences between even just the like social norms of attending a worship yes. on sunday you know oh my i i've been so interested in that um specifically because my husband is black and his um his experience of church is very different and going to I mean I just specifically remember um he grew up in Brooklyn New York um and so we went to his old church and I mean it was in the middle of a neighborhood um it was just a you know a falling down building with bars in the windows and you walk in and there's a highway right next to it and and then you walk in it's this little room with this this little band and there's maybe 15 people but the the preacher and she's a woman and everything's so enthusiastic and so just i don't i don't even know how to you know the words to describe so vibrant and it's such a difference between that and and i really you know, I'm sure there's been studies done on the difference between black churches and white churches essentially um that's kind of um finite definitions for that but um, and I really think it has to do with your experience. Like these, um, when I go, when I visited black churches, like the things they talk about are, are true, true tragedy, true things that they like, they need Jesus for everyday life like that. And I, and then when I go, go to the white churches that, that I've been a part, a part of, you know, predominantly white, it's like, Let's pray for college students for so that they can do well on their finals. And I just, I feel this disconnect. And I'm like, you know, in the long term, I really don't know if Jesus cares, <laughs> you know, what grade I make on this <laughs> test. I just, and there's like this dependence. And I think that is really, really wrapped into your experience in American culture, your experience with poverty, your experience, um, just it rate it's racial too. And I think all of those things tie in together. So I would love, I don't even know how, to go about doing that, but I'm very, very interested in that as well. Right. You'd have to do like an ethnography is sort of, I think what that is generally called where you would like attend different churches and like maybe have a journal where you would write down like, okay, what was the, what was the, how was it based? Like, you know what I mean? You'd you'd Mm -hmm. note different behaviors and things like that. It might be something interesting. Yeah. Like a little research study. Yeah. And I, I definitely think that would be, 
a little bit more subjective because it would be yeah definitely would be my notes but i mean even um so kent's um my husband's mom um lost her um one of her older sons um in new york and so like I don't know. We were in church in Mobile, actually, in her church, and and the preacher was talking about, um, you know, pretty much like finding the light in dark situations and pointing out, like, I know some of you in this room have lost children. So he was talking about more than one person, like more than one person in that room had lost children in their life and had to bury, like, like that. That is that is real at the bottom, right? And I just. There's this real dependence on Jesus and real dependence and need for hope and finding that joy in the darkness. And that is what I think is sometimes missing. This is a little going into kind of my critique sometimes of just like, what is your real dependence on Jesus? I guess like what, what, how does that affect your relationship with him in terms of like how involved you are? And um, but that would be super, I would love to go around. And and I actually have more of a spiritual experience when I go to predominantly black churches because I can just feel this real reverence, like real dependence. I, I can't really come up with another word, but just dependence on his joy and his light and the peace that he brings in such, and then you walk out of that Brooklyn church and you are in Brooklyn, New York City, <laughs> right? Like you face terror every single day. And I... Like to me, I have no concept of that. I can try. I can try to conceptualize and visualize and, and think of what that might feel like. And um, sometimes I ask Ken about it because to him, it's it was everyday life. Right. Like kind of grew up in that. Exactly. Like, and I just, growing up in rural, you know, South Dallas, Texas, I have no clue what that's even about. Like moving to Mobile, moving to um, Austin, that was big city for me. That was getting used to that. And Ken was like, ah. This is no big deal. Like this, you know, no big sweat. And um, those cultural differences have definitely been something we've had to work through as people and as our marriage as well. So it's some good stuff. I would like to do that. Yeah, that'd be really interesting. I'm, now I'm kind of like wanting to delve into this this topic. Just, I don't know, the idea of the so, like the different social norms and the whole way that religion or Christianity is viewed and experienced by the different races. Yeah. And where, um, and I don't really know a whole lot about this. I'm just kind of thinking of, you know, how even religion and God and Jesus um, was used to oppress slaves and was used to um, dehumanize and to degrade and how they were still able to find the light through Jesus and were still able to worship and still able to, to hang on to that and use him for good. And I just, like, that's astounding to me. I always think if I was ever in that situation, I do not think I would be that, I wouldn't be that strong. I know I wouldn't. And I, I, it just blows my mind. And it blows my mind for people who face this terror every day are able to um, find their spirituality and find Jesus in their heart and to other people and um, just that interaction. Um, cause it's real easy to worship God when you have a home to go to and you have food in your cabinet and you have a car to drive and you have a job and you have an income and you know, it, that, that stuff's real easy. And, um, so that's, and that's actually something I struggle with in terms of, I know I have that privilege and I know I have that. Um, so sometimes I do feel guilty, um, that I'm even, even have the opportunity to have this relationship with Jesus when there are other people out there that just deserve him so much more. 
Um, and I always think of, um, see, I don't even know the, the scripture, but just um, those who are first will be last and the last will be first. Like it is, it is the downtrodden, it is the poor, it is the sick. It is those who are going to walk into heaven's gates first before me. And I want them to go. I want them all to, to go. Um, so that's, yeah, if we're going to go on that tangent, <laughs> right? we can definitely go that way. Uh, what was I gonna, I was thinking of, I don't know, there's the scripture about it being easier for a rich man to pass through the eye of a needle than to enter the kingdom of God always sort of stands out. So my reading on that being that someone who has received sort of the earthly reward or the reward, rewards of the world itself, they are more invested in the status quo or just whatever, living a, a life, right? Um, but whenever you don't have, when you don't have anything, I don't know. Um, Sometimes I think religion and spirituality is, is all you have, essentially. That it's something that you can, ta- that's tangible to you and that you can, ha- when I say control over, and, and then no one can take that away from you. Um, and I think that's contingent upon not just, um, you know, among racial lines in America, but I think that just applies to poverty um, and just, you know, how that would apply to the broader context of, of peoples um, in this world. Um, and I just I just think that's such an interesting concept. And even the, the concept of evangelism and what that means, and it's really hard... Um, and I also, I also have some critiques about evangelism too. So I've, um, I've been on a very short-term mission before where if I had to categorize it, I would say it was more like a, a glorified vacation. Like I was doing, really doing nothing for those um, children there. And I think that's how this kind of relates is it was Haitian refugees in the Bahamas. And I think that is also interesting. Uh, <laughs> given part, the timing, right? Yes. Given you know, what just happened. <laughs> and, um, and that, cool. that hurt as well. Cause these, you know, refugees were fleeing um, the hurricane and they, they hop islands and they're, and they're fleeing from this poverty while also living in poverty here, uh, in the Bahamas as well. And just like, I was there for two weeks. I did these sports games and I, and I played with these kids, but what did I actually offer them? When they go home, they're still going home to shacks. Those children are still going home to um, abusive parents who also, and I feel for the parents as well, because I'm sure they're psychologically going through that stress of malnutrition and not knowing not knowing where their next meal is from and how they're going to care for their children what, and, and all of those things that come into that. And so like short-term missions like that really don't, I think we kind of need to revisit what evangelism is and whether it's secretly for us right yeah like you get a picture with all these little kids and you get to put it as your profile picture for two months on facebook like what what are you really doing there um and that's something i struggled with while i was there too like what what is my purpose besides i almost felt like i was rubbing my privilege in into the faces of these children like i get to choose whether i leave here i get to go to the beach and then go back home like i and it was it was um, a very apparent internal struggle during, I think it was like a week that I went. So I have another critique about <laughs> about missions and evangelism what the, and what that looks like. Interesting. Yeah, that was going to be what I was going to say is like, it almost feels like that is for the, for you to make, feel better about yourself. I mean, not you as in 
someone who is participating in a mission, which again, it's like, do I don't want to necessarily dissuade people from doing that sort of work, but I think your, your point is, is apropos, you know, it's, it's a good point to bring out. Um, and there are the, there are pro, there are wonderful programs out there. Um, I actually have two best friends. Um, they're going to be missionaries in Nicaragua and they, and I think this, what this um, particular program is doing is incredible. They create a sustainable economy for people um, in this area in Nicaragua. So they provide employment for these families. This employment provides income. The income provides freedom and independence and just opens the door to better education for them and their children. And I think we really have to go to the root of that. And so they're definitely like, this is not a knock on all evangelism, but I definitely think um, there are those who are doing it right and, and doing it in a way that's sustainable instead of just visit for a week and come back. Right. And like leaving a lasting impact of mm-hmm. some sort. I think that's an important distinction for sure. Um, I would encourage you also to go back and read about the Haitian revolution. Okay. Um, Definitely. So there was, and I honestly am not as educated as I would like to be about it, but I do know that it was sort of a, a sort of uprising against, it was sort of an you know, the whole context of colonialism and slave upright. I think, you know, they pretty much like revolted against the slave plant, the plantation owners there in Haiti mm-hmm. and it got pretty violent and crazy. Yeah. But, uh, like they definitely sort of, um, they, they took their freedom yeah. back. I mean, yeah. Unfortunately, that's kind of, that's colonialism wrapped up, wrapped up. And, um, that's really interesting. I'll definitely have to go and, uh, and take a look at that. Um, but I'm not surprised. There's there's a spirit um, among the downtrodden. There's just something there that I've never been able to tap into. And I think it's because of the position that I'm in. Um, but it's beautiful and wonderful. I'll have to show you this. I have a pretty zesty meme. And it's uh, it's sort of, I don't you're probably not familiar with the vapor wave, but it's it's an internet thing. I'm, I'm, su- <laughs> I'm super online. So, um, but it's like, in this vaporwave style, and it's like these slaves are like hanging uh, this obviously kind of colonial looking guy. And it's like, it says, if your party was isn't as lit as the Haitian Revolution, then don't invite me. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty spicy, oh my God. but yeah. it's, it's a good oh, yeah. one. I, it was a personal favorite. I, I loved it. Well, I hope you said it to your computer. That is... oh, it's on the phone for quick, quick access. Oh my gosh, I'm sure I'm not surprised. <laughs> but um, I mean, that's that's very indicative, and I think, um, yeah, I think that applies to not not necessarily every every single revolution, but that's that's very admirable. Um, and I need to go take a look at that. I think after this, I'm <laughs> right. I've got a whole reading list for you. Awesome. Oh, <laughs> now I don't have anything planned out, but oh. definitely could make some suggestions and some podcast episodes and things like that to check out. But I don't want to derail this too much because I think you brought you brought a lot of you spent a lot of time preparing. So, do you have a do you have a point that you want to or subject that you want to jump into? Sure. Something um, that's burning in your mind. Oh my god, it's been burning in my heart for a long time. <laughs> nice. Um, I when people tell me like, what am I really into and what am I really passionate about? I I just have a heart for people who are incarcerated. I have a heart for people. Um, who have been cast out of society as bad and as untouchable and as scum and as people that aren't worth the time and the money and the investment and, and 
that essentially we've cast them as not even people anymore. It's not even human. Um, and I, it's been a long journey. It's been kind of a winding journey. I don't even know how I specifically, um, I've always been a very compassionate person. Like if someone else is feeling, I, I just, I feel with them. Um, sometimes it can, um, be a little burdensome sometimes, but, um, that's definitely something that I would love to talk about. And that, that, um, wraps up with history and capitalism and individualism and the idea between punishment versus rehabilitation and what that looks like as a society. Like, what do we really value as a society? Um, and how that contradicts with this idea of being a Christian nation and this, this idea of being founded on um, Christian ideals and how that's not it at all. What's the saying? There's something you can judge a society by how it treats its like worst off. I don't. I forget the actual term, but something to that nature, like to that extent of what? How do you treat your prisoners, or how do you treat the like were the lowest among you, or something like that? Yeah, um, and that's that's very true. Um, and I just kind of going, not going off, but I was just scrolling through Twitter and there was, um, I follow a lot of, um, social justice adv advocates, especially like, um, like criminologists and people who are activists and trying to do criminal justice reform. And, um, this guy had done an article, kind of done a study or shared one where they evaluated the food quality in a prison and just how horrible it was. And the the comments towards this article was like, well, if those, you know, prisoners, you know, we give them bad food so they don't come back. I mean, that, <laughs> that was the that was the thinking, like we treat them horribly so that they don't ever want to come back. And I and it wasn't just one, it was several people that were just so quick to be like, well, because they're prisoners, they deserve bad food. There was no thinking of what nutrition does to the brain, what nutrition does to the body, what it does um, to just changing the mode of thinking. And I definitely want to educate myself more in prison psychology and what, and how that affects, um, just their mental stability or instability. And, um, but I, that was just a clear picture of how we view prisoners and how that relates to how we view other races in this country, for sure. I think definitely the racial component of, you know, I, the overwhelming numbers of you know, minority people that are, that are in prison. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's all tied up into the whole, you know, the war on drugs and. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that spanned over three presidencies and that spanned from Richard Nixon to the hailed Ronald Reagan and even Bill Clinton as well. Um, yeah. You had Richard Nixon and then, um, you know, Ronald Reagan really was the person that created a, a, like a mass media campaign to show into um, show images and videos of um, essentially black men and black women to, to view them as criminals, to view them as nothing more um, than dangerous or something you need to stay away from. And this, I mean, we could really get into this, but this stems from even just the emancipation of slaves or even just thinking of black men and black women as, as a race as dangerous, as something that we can't have them infect white society and we can't um, all like the black codes and, and, and Jim Crow laws and all of these things. And it's evolved. Slavery has only evolved. It's never really been eradicated. Um, it's just taken a different form. And right now it's mass incarceration and how um, the, you know, racially like blacks only make up, you know, X amount of our total population, but they make up a very large portion of 
um, who we have incarcerated and who we have put in prisons um, and, and the effect that Bill Clinton had with these three strikes laws and the minimums, oh my goodness, the, the horrible devastation that minimum sentencing has done to families, generations of families. Um, so I'm, I'm just very, very passionate about all of those things. And it's, it's, a, um, it's an ongoing journey to learn. I have to know more. I have to know more. Right. I won't pass up an opportunity to shit on Ronald Reagan on a couple of points. <laughs> uh, one being that, you know, the CIA was involved with crack and like getting that into mm-hmm. the str- into the streets yes. for one. Um, but then also like the Iran, con- the Iran Contra mm-hmm. affair, whole thing, like using the the drug dealing with the Contras in I might be, might even be Nicaragua. Nicaragua. Mm-hmm. I forget yeah. exactly where yeah. the Contras play or, you know, are located geographically speaking. But that was whole, like, uh, just so crazy, like, all tied up into, like, we're selling arms to Iran, but we're, like, funneling this money, this drug money. Yeah. Uh, just crazy. Yeah, and at the, and at the time that this, uh, you know, war on drugs was essentially enacted, um, the rates at which people were using drugs drugs or narcotics or narcotics um, was actually decreasing. There was no there was no drug problem per se. There was wasn't any type of crisis going on, and this was really just an excuse and a way to put um, people who would vote against Ronald Reagan and other um, and other Republicans essentially because the parties switched, and that that was a way that they were able to make sure people couldn't vote. Um, And there's a whole different tie to that, too, with nonviolent drug offenses and how if you have to check that felony box, you are legally discriminated against in every turn once you get out. Um, There's just wonderful um, documentation of of just how when you are released from prison and you have to check that box at every employment um, opportunity, but then you can't um, get a driver's license without being employed, but you can't. Um, get to that job because you don't have a car. Well, you can't really get a car if you don't have a driver's. Like, there's, it's just this right. whole. You system. can't even find a place to live. Exactly, it's hard to find a place that will accept you with a, mm-hmm. a felony conviction. Yeah, and you lose all of the the people who need it the most. Lose all sorts of of federal help, and so, um, you know, these um, peoples of color move back to these poor communities where it's just a cycle of poverty and there's no way to break out of it. And so, um, and it doesn't help when we have employer-based insurance and where you really just work two or three very, you know, part-time jobs that don't offer insurance in any way. And so um, that's hard. That is a hard life. And I can't, um, I empathize. Like if I was in that situation, I would absolutely, I mean, selling drugs and doing things it, it's quick money it's a way to to earn um a living in a way that you can't um, right. because the system doesn't allow you and i think people lose that humanity part of it because there's this um individualistic like whatever you do is you know as a direct result of your consequences and that's your fault you know nothing else affects you and that is from a place of privilege that's a place of not understanding where other people are in their walks of life and and what that means for them. Um, very interesting. So Kent and I actually are watching, it's a Netflix show, and it talks about um, drug policing. And they, this camera crew follows police, and they follow the actual drug dealers. Um, and it's so interesting. I was getting so upset watching the show. I, I couldn't watch it for very long. Um, but it, when they would interview a drug dealer or 
um, there's different, there's ranks among um, that business. And when they would interview someone, they would just talk about how like my dad overdosed on heroin and my, um, this family member and this friend. And they're like, but there's no, there's nothing else here. There's no other opportunities. There's like, I feel bad for what I'm doing. I don't want to do this, but this is all we have. And this is all we know. And I think people forget about that. They forget about the humanity and that people in the situations don't have, don't have a choice really, or at least they feel, um, quite frankly, that they don't have a choice because everywhere they turn, they're turned down right. or they're rejected from. So uh, why don't you just, well, if this area is so bad, why don't you just move to a different neighborhood? Why don't you get a job? Why would you do, you know what I mean? Instead of, mm-hmm. you know, there are systemic factors. And I think that's my biggest critique of, of sort of the conservative viewpoint is that it sort of looks at the ind- as people as individuals that aren't impacted by their surroundings or the environment their place in history, their place in the economy, and all these different factors. It's like when you in when you're a convict and you have that felony on your record. I mean, we that's like we've talked about that pretty much takes you out of makes it really difficult for you to participate in society yeah. without going back because it's like why would I bust my ass doing you know working two or three really shitty part time jobs for minimum wage when I could be dealing drugs, making a whole hell of a lot more without having to pay taxes on that. Plus I'm respected. I'm more respected in the neighborhood um, because I deal drugs and I've got money. And those are the people that gain respect and set not like the hardworking guy. That's kind of like, you know, trying to make ends meet. I don't think those people get the same level of respect on the street, so to speak. Yeah. And that's another thing. You know, this is all um, from, me trying to self-educate. Like, I have no idea what that's like. I have no idea of what it's like to live in that type of neighborhood. Neighborhood. Um, all I can do is listen to other people. And that's another thing, too, is we are so quick to critique those. Like, once those voices are finally able to speak and to be voiced and to, ha- and to hit mainstream and to be able to be paid attention to, we're so quick to critique, oh, well, you shouldn't protest this way you shouldn't say these things and how you know my my point is like how dare i tell them how they need to protest if they are so if there is so much anger and hurt to where they feel as if like looting a store or breaking wind or just this or mass is taking the streets like who am i to tell them any differently it's my job to sit and listen to whatever their grievance is um and that's why and if you're in a position where you feel like you can critique their protest, that is a position of privilege, whether you want to acknowledge that or not. The fact that you get to, well, sorry, but your situation isn't that good. And this is how you need to voice this to me in order, like that, that's just, and it's your way of, of voicing privilege, you know, over those people. Um, and I think a lot of people haven't had that privilege talk with themselves. Um, and just this, dare I say the term of, of white fragility. And I absolutely think that exists whether you're aware or whether you are just in the state of of obliviousness um but i i think that also interacts with um people protesting and trying to voice their opinion as well i've got two anecdotes for you uh the first that i'll i'll start with the i guess the most the more legit one would be 
let's see, what's his name? Matt Taibbi, who he used to write for Rolling Stone, uh, journalist, pretty well-known guy. He was on the Majority Report with Sam Cedar the other day, and they were talking about Eric Garner because his mm-hmm. daughter, Erica, yes. uh, I think was ha- has had some health issues mm-hmm. lately. And, and what, I don't know if she, she passed away. She passed away. Mm-hmm. I think it was ultimately um, from a heart attack. Um, and they talk about when, like, when you're an activist, it takes, there's so much stress. It's physical. Like this stress is also physical as well. And so they, they said that, that you know, dying from, from a broken heart and also having to take on this burden of trying to fix a system that is so against you. So sorry, keep going. Um, so Matt was talking about um, sort of the whole... I guess how Eric Garner operated in the neighborhood and like his whole way of, you know, making a living and he kind of delved in to all of that stuff. And I want to say this, this was either Thursday or Friday's episode of the majority report with Sam Cedar, which is a pretty, you can find it on YouTube or, uh, you know, iTunes. Mm-hmm. I definitely would recommend checking that out. Cause I think that, I mean, that obviously that ties into commu- how, you know, the communities are policed and I mean, just like, oh, the I can't breathe shit. Like, oh man, yeah. that yeah. just. Um, and I think it's also that there's there's video evidence. It's not even a he said, she said anymore. There is clear digital right. video evidence. Um, and just, uh, and to me, that just proves that the system is set up. Um, and I just, just the whole concept of policing in and of itself is something that um, I'm diving into and how like police policing in general started from catching runaway slaves the justices of the peace um for whatever region would hire these guys to go out and catch runaway slaves like that is where our police forces today stemmed from so how can you possibly think that a system that was born from that can possibly be truly fair and truly just and truly um something that that wants equality for all um and i just think that that's something and i don't think people know that either i don't like just um one of the books i'm reading right now i blew my mind like the the st louis missouri police force like the entirety i think it was 1808 was when it was founded was founded to protect the white settlers from the indigenous peoples like that's what it was founded on was racial lines and racial hate um as we exploited and destroyed people's land who we took like i it's really impossible for me to be for a, to be um in support of a system that was founded on such horrible ground this is making my like my uh socialist spidey sense tingle <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. for a couple of angles on this because the you know socialists will often say that the police force basically exists they exist to enforce property rights which would make sense yes. in that context of protecting the the yeah from the indigenous folks yeah and i it's so interesting to me that that those who claim to be you know not necessarily anti-government but government stay out of affairs um sort of sort of thinking are so in support of the concept of policing because the police is it's government sanctioned like that that is directly how the government is involved um in the lives of the people um and how policing generally over time has been over history has been a, a community thing it's been community policing 
Um, and actually the book, I'm, the, the author of the book I'm reading, I haven't gotten to this point, but in her um, uh, little introduction, she talks about she is for the eradication of um, policing in general. I'm so, I cannot wait to get to that chapter and, and, and piece that together and, and, um, dive into that. But that's because policing in general wasn't a, wasn't a government sanctioned thing until very recently. Um, and I don't think people know that either. I think policing. Oh, definitely not. Yeah. Um, they just think policing's just always been a part of it, um, or how hierarchical and how based on military, um, thinking it is and how, it's it's almost ran by fear too. Like if my if I feel as if my safety is compromised, then your life suddenly becomes less important, right. and I'm authorized to take whatever action by necessary. the state. Yeah. Very interesting. I'm all about. I think that. So I have a pretty radical opinion on this, and I don't even want to. I don't want to do this to be honest, but uh, or at least personally. But I think our society could benefit from. Some type of man- mandatory policing service. Um, you know, there are some countries like Israel and Switzerland, I think, that have kind of a mandatory, you have to serve in the military for like two years. All, all citizens have to. I think that would be a way better approach to policing than than what we have right now. And sort of this like, I guess it's sort of what like, a mar- I guess it's ultimately like a market based approach to policing that letting people that sort of want to go into policing become police which i don't know if that's the best that's the best way to do it and and structure it because i think that the types of people who want that authority uh if you want authority you're probably not the type of person that i want to give authority to you know what i mean it's the people that are more reluctant to exercise authority or be in positions of authority that i think i are often the the better leaders or, you know what I mean, people that you want in that sort of situation. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I just, yeah, ha- having other, just this inherent um, authority is something that's also really interesting too. Like just because you have this, you really do have so much power over other people. Um, and I, like that would be real, like that idea was, would be really interesting to, to unpack. Um, and I did very brief research for just a little bit. Um, when I was in Mobile, I was very interested to see what were the qualifications to even be a police officer. And I think all of the academies per se are so different. Some are, you have six months of classes and then you go shadow a police officer for a year. And some are like year programs and they're all just so different and so inconsistent. And I would look at the names of these classes and none none of it really has anything to do with communication. Um, it kind of definitely has more of like protection and learning laws and how to execute those and, and, and procedure. Um, there's no communicate, there's no diffusion of situations. There's no, how do I relate? Yeah. How do I deescalate yeah. an intense situation? And I just, I, there's just no focus on them. Like, well, then how can you go into a situation prepared? You are programmed to think the exact opposite. You are always in danger. You are always in fear. Um, you're told where you like where you need to be. So whites and blacks use drugs primarily around the same rates. And in fact, white people are actually more likely to deal and they're more likely to use harder drugs like narcotics. 
but you don't see police officers patrolling white suburbs, do you? Right. Like that, and that's also if we wanted to tie this to Ronald Reagan too, like that's where that came from. Like um, the idea of SWAT teams or drug enforcement teams, and um, the the ability to be able to just break down someone's door because you have a warrant and to raid their house, plunder knock things over, do whatever you want, and then leave and be able to seize property and keep it. Um, it's just these, it's such an overreach. And that's why it's very interesting that those who are, have this ideology of not, you know, anti-government, get out of my business, have such a positive view of how policing is done. And it also goes back to like, well, they're bad. They deserve right. it. Exactly. Yeah, they deserve I think it's something interesting to just speak to the culturally or almost the psycho the psychological psychoanalytic aspect of it too of what does putting on a uniform and a gun and a badge and having that authority what does that do to your to you psychologically mm-hmm. are you familiar with uh what is it that's like Stanley Milgram and the like the Stanford he ran some experiments that were pretty crazy. Wow. I would definitely yeah. recommend. So there's like the Stanford uh, police. It, w- it was sort of this mock penal setup or, you know, sort of jail where the people were, they had people that were guards and the way that they treated the people, these fo- phony prisoners, like everyone knew that this was like an experiment, right? But the people got really into these roles and were, it was, it's a very interesting phenomenon yeah. i would definitely check that out now that that changes but yeah the stan psychology. the stanford prison experiment and stanley milgram or okay. i'm pretty sure i almost thought you were gonna say stanley Yelnats or something. <laughs> was the researcher um very interesting mm-hmm. there was another study and i'm not i can't remember if he also did this one but it was like uh these people had the ability to sh- like if they pressed a button, someone they couldn't see would get shocked, and yes, there was different. How someone of authority, if someone that you trust and is of authority, that they, they just had lab coats on, and the yes, I know exactly what study. I don't have the name of it, but just and how that applies to not only just like policing's and and systems of power, but just like how dictators. Um, you know, analyzing the psychology of that, like how dictators and just people of authority are, you, you, you are so easily manipulated. Right. Um, and just, that, that just blows, it scares me. It blows my mind because I'm a part of that, right? Like I'm not immune to those things. Um, I'm being manipulated by advertisements every day. These, these different digital signals are being sent to my brain every day. And I just think I have control over that when I really don't. Um, so that would be really interesting. I'd like to unpack that too. Along with the Haitian Revolution, we so have a lot, a lot to look up <laughs> right. after this. All kinds of schizoid things. Mm-hmm. For sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, especially in the context of something like the Holocaust and the the death, the, you know, the Nazi death camps and shit like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, I just definitely like. There's a link there, and I think it goes to that idea of you know, donning that uniform changes changes who you are at least while you have it on, you know what I mean? And having a gun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just even, you know, con- the concept of guns and what that means in in relation to American politics and American society, that's a whole whole other thing too in terms of like just 
what you think you need to, to defend yourself and, and what you think you need to be secure and what that means in relation to other people. And I don't know. I just, the, that, like I said, that's a whole nother, um, that's a whole nother thing that can be unpacked later, but, um, just even just the concept of guns and how that's used and how and SWAT teams and military grade weapons are used to do home raids and just, it's an, it's crazy. I mean, um, my husband and I went to Italy for, um, for our honeymoon and we remember walking off the train station and there's a tank, there's a tank with two military guys with these huge machine guns and just how uncomfortable it made me and just how unsafe, you know, those, those people were there supposedly to make everyone safe, but how much more unsafe I felt um, in that space with the uniforms on and, and what that means. And so that's really interesting when, when you have police officers that have similar gear and have the similar look and prowess and, and what that means in relation to those, those communities that are being policed. Right. A very aggressive display of state power. Mm-hmm. Exactly. The- exactly. And, um, the kind of that same show that I was talking about that was just really making me angry on Netflix. Um, they would interview the drug dealers and people who were, you know, distributing. Um, and then they would also go on the police side of things and how they talked about how if they're pursuing someone who thinks, who they think is a drug dealer, they'll pull them over for a broken taillight, but they're actually pulling them over so that they can search their car. And it was just normal and how they, they manipulated that way. And I just... It blew my mind. I started yelling at the TV and Ken was like, we, we just don't need to watch this because it makes you too upset. And I, he was right. And I just, that, that power of just being able, and most people don't know that if, 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 if an officer asks you, like, can you step out of your car? You can say no. There, you have certain rights. And um, police officers know that most people don't really know what their rights are um, when it comes to interactions with the police officers. They just assume, like, comply and do whatever they say. Um, when as a citizen, you have rights as well. Um, but most people don't know that. And so that's what happens. And they search a a traffic stop with five different cops turns into a full raid of their space and raid of their car. And that just is such an invasion of their humanity and who they are. Um, there's such a deeper context to that I feel like. It's interesting that you mentioned that because there's a um, so there's a political party called the Democratic Socialists of America, the DSA, and there's you know a growing sort of movement since I think, especially lately, especially since like 2016 and beyond, in the um, you know I think spurred forth by the election of Trump and whatnot. But they recently held an event, uh, maybe a month or two ago, where that was one thing that they did is they like would had a whole thing where they were helping fix broken taillights for people like you get to come in. And they would actually do that. They would fix, because that's, like you're saying, that's how they get in and sort of look for those little things like that to harass you or or what have you. Yeah. I mean, essentially they can pull you over for whatever they feel like. And even the concept of probable cause to me is just so aloof. It's just so broad. and and, And it gives those people so much power over you. And I just don't. I just don't agree. And that makes me feel more unsafe um, in, in general. And I know um, there's aspects of, lot of my life that give me privilege to where I don't feel quite as unsafe as someone like my husband who 
really has to worry about their own safety um, if there's an interaction with a cop um, and other people who are frequently harassed. Um, and that's a, a, a reality of day-to-day life. And I can't even, I can't relate. I can't even imagine something like that. Right. Oh God. What was it? Maybe a month ago to the, uh, the guy that was killed. <laughs> oh my goodness. Going for reaching for like his waist to pull his pants Philando up. Castile. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, who's the one reason that in the car it was either? No, this was like very recently. Th- this was a white guy that w- it was. He was in like a motel room or something, and was on the ground and like obviously like kind of a little bit inebriated. And the cops were giving him these really complicated instructions, and his like pants had fallen down or were like falling down, and he was like on these like hands and knees. And so he goes to like pull his pants just like reflexively, and they shoot him and kill him. And but that's the thing is the idea is he might be reaching for a gun. Well, then why? Because of your fear of your own safety, why does that give you the power to end that man's life? Like why is that a legitimate excuse? And it's been used in court before. It's why so many police officers are acquitted. Is that's that's what's used in court? Is my my the fear for my safety and fear for my life? suddenly just becomes more important than the person that I'm policing. And that, that I have not heard that story and that it breaks my heart. That's oh, just that stuff. I, it makes me sick to my stomach. Like I, uh, it just makes me feel so hopeless. It really yeah. uh, bothers me to, to no end all of those situations. And I th- think over the past couple of years, every time that it happens, you know, and it feels like it's become more prominent, like, I guess with smartphones becoming so much more ubiquitous that mm-hmm. people are able to capture some of this stuff. But, oh my God. Yeah. It really makes me want to just throw, yeah, makes me nauseous. Yeah. I, <laughs> no, I, I totally I understand that. And um, it's interesting because we say, and I've also heard that too, like it's just, it's becoming more prominent. Like people know about it. And I'm like, the, this has been happening this is for such a long time. Pulling the bandaid off of what's been going on. Yeah. yeah. Just a long time. Like this, this is the reality um it's and the fact that it has to be a reality is also something that makes me sick to my stomach as well and how people don't have don't don't have any empathy for that as well um it's just automatic yeah you should like they'll automatically back the cops no matter what i i hate that knee jerk reaction Mm -hmm. to be quite honest as well because it's like yeah, you might have been in a dangerous situation. You might have felt at risk, but there's no need to kill. Like, if you're killing someone, you know, that, come on. Yeah. It's it's the 21st century. We can figure out a way to subdue a, and de-escalate a, a situation without killing someone. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Shoot him in the leg, you know, or the, shoot him in the arm or hand. Like, that's even giving you the benefit of the doubt of that you needed a gun. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? To say, like, shoot them in the knee, like, something like that. Don't fucking kill the guy yeah. or whomever, right? Yeah, well, it's, it's very interesting you say that. And I don't think I've shared this story with you. Um, when I was in college, I think it was, like, freshman, sophomore year, um, me and a friend were, this was around 1 in the morning, One in the morning. Um, me and a friend were walking from our dorm, um, going to his apartment, and outside of my dorm was a man and a couple of other men as well. I don't remember the other men. There may, may have been two or three, but this one guy, he was clear, not just inebriated, but clearly there, there was drugs involved. Um, 
it was just a little bit something past drunk. Um, and so he walked up to me and my friend and, and shook our hands and said, he looked me in the face. He said, take this journey with me. Come with me. I want to take you. And I was like, oh, okay. Like some, <laughs> something's going on. Well, as we get in our car and we're about to leave, he t- I notice he takes off his shirt. An hour later, we get a notification that a man has been shot on campus. So the man that I just shook hands with, um, so what happened was he was on some sort of, um, if I remember correctly, he was on some sort of synthetic drug. There was a a music festival going on in Mobile, so I think that that kind of stemmed that. Um, But those, I don't know what happened between our interaction and then later because he was ended up alone naked across from our dorm was the police building for our campus and this guy was running around this police um building and uh, confronted a police officer and like ran out the police officer police officer shot and killed him um shot him in the in the chest and there was such a such a debate about, and you know, I just broke my heart that, I mean, it really, really rattled me that I had looked someone in the face, spoke to, shook someone's hand that, you know, was shot an hour later. And that was also an argument, like couldn't have been shot anywhere other than the chest or just something to be subdued. And he wasn't even armed. He was naked. Like what, why did that fear of um, like your safety emit the authority to be able to kill the other person? And, um, there was some, I don't really know the specifics on what is taught in terms of where to shoot or things like that. Um, I People told me that police officers are shot to, or excuse me, are taught to shoot like in, in the chest cavity. I could totally be wrong about that. I don't want to make assumptions. Um, but I, I really feel like if that's true, then this played out here and it, it resulted in the end of, of someone's life. Um, and that is always something that has stuck with me with that argument, like why he couldn't have been shot anywhere else? Or is there anything else that could have been done um, in that situation? And that's that's being generous in that they even needed to pull out a gun. Like, there surely there are other methods. Tasing, I don't know. I, I feel stupid saying this, but like a net gun of something like you know just fucking shoot him with a net like yeah what are we gonna do you know I'm gonna be scooby-doo now <laughs> yeah exactly i don't know spider-man something there's like there's a compromise here there's there's a way that we can subdue someone without having to kill them even if they've done wrong even if they are a criminal you've committed a crime doesn't necessarily mean that you deserve to die right yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know what i mean like, that the cop can be judge jury and executioner in yeah. such a context and again you like I, I will defend the police in this sense that, you know what I mean? Like they're putting on that uniform and they're doing a very difficult job. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that in the context of doing that job, they deal with a lot of shitty situations. Yeah. And those shitty situations are going to color how they treat others in their job and how they view other people and react towards them because... I mean, for one, for one argument, everything looks like a nail to a hammer, right? But also, like, whenever you're dealing with kind of shitty people and shitty situations on a day-to-day basis, I mean, that's going to affect you and how you interact with others, no doubt. That's why I think this idea of community police forces is so important because it's, it's probably, I mean, it's got to be unhealthy psychologically to even 
be a, a police person on a daily basis, you know what I mean? On like a beat, dealing with, you know, drug dealers and bums and alcoholics and, and so forth, right? Like, yeah. that's got to be stressful. Yeah, and I and I absolutely I empathize and I feel for that as well. And you aren't... So I guess the, the biggest example that I can even provide in something like that, um, my grandfather, he disowned me because I married a black man. And he was a Dallas County Sheriff for a long time. It's very was, comforting. Yeah. <laughs> From he Dallas. Was, yeah. He was, he was a bailiff. He used to be the person that would take pictures of murders and homicides. And um, he's seen the worst of the worst. And um, I feel really, you know, it, it has hurt me as his granddaughter. He's, he's my only living grandparent. And so I've, you know, I've lost that connection. But I really... This is just me spitballing, but I, I just really think that those experiences that he went through shaped the way he thinks and feels about other races and how he feels about black men and how, you know, and I've never really, I've never been able to have that conversation with him. I really wish I could. Um, but I think that that is, you make a really great point is that when you're dealing with those situations in, in another, I don't think they're set up for success. Right. Yeah. Sense. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of my point too, is it just... They're in a difficult position and with institutional racism and, you know, the way that cities are segregated mm-hmm. by race and economic. Mm-hmm. It's it's a hierarchy, too. It's a someone above, is above you and you listen to them. And that person has something, has someone above them and they listen to them. And it's just like you're, you're taking orders and I, I don't know how much um, I, yeah, I, I don't know how much critical thinking is used besides like this is how things are done and this is procedure and this is what um you know listening to the cops conversations on that show and i know i keep referencing the show and it's not the end all be all of the insides of policing um but just their thoughts of we're protecting citizens we have to get those people off the street and my next question was like well then what you get them off the street they go to jail for five to ten years and then they come back like what is that really how you make a community safer? Is that really how you foster a positive relationship with the people that you're essentially trying to help? I just, there's just a complete disconnect, um, I think, between, and it's a, de- for me, it's a dehumanization. It's a, they're a problem, we need to get them out. We need to take them off the streets. I'm like, well, then then what? And and what what did you really accomplish? Like, yeah, you just took X amount of drugs off the street it's gonna come back like what the the root of those things aren't being addressed like those people and we kind of swinging back to what we we're talking about it's a result of poverty it's a result of an endless cycle of poverty that people can't escape and so like are you really are you really making communities safer and i just wish that there was we could just completely reprogram Interesting. Uh, that also kind of ties back into that podcast I mentioned. So tight with Matt Taibbi was mentioning, I think that this, you know, this sort of whole impetus to remove Eric Garner from the neighborhood or arrest him or like, it was sort of kind of coming from above, like the, um, the police leadership structure or what have you, like they wanted, they were going to get him they were going to arrest him kind of no matter what the actual conditions are. Like they were going to find a way sort of was kind of the, was inferred 
as a part of it. Um, and the way that sort of police departments utilize statistics and things like that, that like, that's kind of how they can show, you know, Oh, we're, we're, this is how we're making an impact. We have so-and-so amount, X amount of drug arrests, X amount of this type of arrest, blah, blah, blah. Like that's demonstrating sort of air quotes empirically that we are making an impact. Yeah. Like that's, that's what they use to measure success. Right. And what is that? What does that mean? And it's a complete disconnect from the actual mission of or policing, the, or at least what we're kind of you know colloquially familiar with. Yeah. Or even whatever the needs of the community are. Um, that's that's very interesting, and I've and I've also thought about that too. And and it's not just police officers. It's it's the entire. It kind of gets overwhelming when I think about it. Just the entire structure of. Um, debtor's prison of even just the concept of bonds of if you are poor and you can't pay that bond that they've um that bail bond that they've set for you then you stay in print you know that this concept of innocent until proven guilty is not true it just does, it isn't played out well unless you have the money to pay your bail post bail and then get out um there are so i mean just so many instances where Someone's arrested, they can't pay their bail, so they stay in um, that county jail. They actually end up going to the prison and they just stay there until someone can pay that bail. But of course, that doesn't end up happening. And so prosecutors know that. Prosecutors actually have the most power um, in a court system because they're able to push court dates back and push it back for just miscellaneous reasons that they can just come up with, right? Um, and they just push it back, push it back. And eventually the idea is if we let this person suffer in prison enough, they'll just come forward and accept a plea bargain. And they'll just say, yes, I'm, even if they didn't do it, yes, I'm guilty, I'll go to jail for X many years. But they didn't, then they don't realize, now I have to check that box. Now I have to say that I was um, con- a convicted felon. And they don't realize the type of legal discrimination that now they have to go through for the rest of their lives. And it's just, yeah, it gets overwhelming sometimes. Definitely. Something I wanted to touch on too was sort of, and it's sort of, I guess, correlated to this is sort of the tactics that the police will use to get you to sort of incriminate yourself or, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? They kind of, they know, they know the tricks to use to get you to kind of yes, make you, a mistake, right? Exactly. Like if you... Um, if you give us information about your, like if you're a dealer, if you give um, us information about your supplier, we can make arrangements for you and whatever your sentencing is or whatever. But if you don't, you're going to jail for X amount of years. You're looking at this time before he's even brought before a judge, before a trial, before any of that. You are guilty as you're sitting there, as they're trying to talk to you and that that type of manipulation, I think, is just unjust as well. So that's a really great point. Pretty crazy to think about, especially, too, you know, to get, you have to think if you're uneducated and you're panicked and get, I don't know, ugh. Yeah. And you're just in a bad situation. Don't don't talk to the cops. That's what I'm saying. And then, of course, the, the concept of trying to um, pay for a legitimate lawyer or um, – that's also someone who can give you the information that you need or who wants to give you the information um, that you need and who who cares about the situation that you're in. And um, we had previously talked about the situation of the um, situation my husband was actually in and how... Oh, yeah, this is a great story. 
yeah, so we can, yeah, we can totally go over that. Um, so my um, husband was in a situation, he worked for um, Books A Million. And in that, essentially, like as an employee, you're supposed to like sell certain things. And I think it was like a, a discount card, like a Books A Million card or, or something to that effect. And um, there was a way where he um, was like, oh, if this discount can be, like this discount can be applied and they'll be more apt to wanna buy these cards. And so, you know, his managers didn't say anything about it. He thought he was doing the right thing, just thinking of ways to get these cards um, sold um, because you have to meet a quota. And over a period of months, um, this corporate guy um, shows up at Books A Million and and calls Kent over the overhead speaker and they go into the office. And essentially, they're saying, you've stolen thousands of dollars from Books Million, like we've been tracking you, we've been watching you. Not, hey, we're gonna flag this and let you know that this isn't right. It's we've been watching you <laughs> right. over the course of the months stealing this money. And of course, Ken's like, what? Like, what are you talking about? And um, so anyway, he so um, what was it? Oh, so they walk him outside, and you know he accepts like he's been fired in that moment, and they call a cop. And that cop rolls up and the um, cop realizes, hey, like, um, because a police report had to be written because they were accusing Kent of all of this money that he had cost books a million. So essentially it wasn't supposed to be an arrest. It was just supposed to be, we need to file a police report. And then the cop goes, oh, this is over $500. This is a felony and starts reading off his rights. Um, and of course my husband's like, Whoa, like what is going on? Like th- this is insane. Um, and luckily, um, he had the wits about him to know he had like car payment money. He had like rent money in his pockets. And so he was like, Hey, um, can you wait until my brother gets here so I can give him this money before you take me into jail? Cause he knew, um, actually my husband's dad, um, was a, uh, jail police officer for a prison guard for a long long time so he kind of knew that whatever property the police take from you it's theirs it's pretty much gone and they can use it for whatever they want um so he called his older brother older brother comes um the money is exchanged and then kent is um handcuffed and put in a car um in the police car and so he is driven to the local precinct um and another lucky break um so kent actually knew one of the um i don't know if she was a deputy she he knew someone there and she pointed him out in the lineup to get like his fingerprints done and um she was like oh you know why are you here this is insane like you come over here and you sit right here and so he kind of pulled kent away from um that general lineup and so he sat there for a little bit um but then he was put into like a holding cell and this holding cell, he actually knew someone in the cell. Um, so, you know, they were friends. And so he didn't really get to, um, he didn't experience any like violence or anything like that. He knew someone that was in um, the cell. And so after, I think it was the night, um, essentially they were able to get enough money, um, Ken's family, and they were able to bail him out. Um, but this was still on his record. It was still a felony. And so he had to go through around a year of court dates. Well, my husband had worked at a daycare facility for around eight years. He had taken care of this little girl. Well, this little girl's dad was a very prominent lawyer in Mobile. I mean, did murder cases, like he was the real deal. And this 
lawyer decided to take Kent's case on because Kent had taken care of his uh, little girl while she was growing up at the daycare. So he charged very little, like very, very discounted rate, very great lawyer for Kent. And eventually after a year, um, they were able to get the felony charge off of his um, off of his record. But there were still repercussions. So the whole time he still has bills, but he can't get a job because he has to check the box still, even though he hasn't officially been convicted of anything. Um, and that took a lot of hits to his credit. And um, that's something that we're working on in our marriage is having to combat that debt um, and the repercussions, repercussions that come with that as well. So if it wasn't for several things, he could have very well been in that system. Um, he could very well be in the situation where he would have to check that box. Um, that could have limited his chances to finish his education while he was in college and affecting him meeting me and affecting him in his job that he has now. And it just, yeah, if it, what, really, if it wasn't for that lawyer that helped him, I'd, I, it's kind of scary to think about. I don't know what, I don't know what would have happened to Ken at that point. Right. The system is definitely really callous and just terrible. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's like all of those people that work in the system too, at like the jails and everything are just, I don't know. It's just, they're so detached. I think like their humanity is drained out of them and like they have little compassion. Obviously it looks like luckily this person at least, you know what I mean? He benefited from some some people that still had <laughs> were in touch with their humanity, but it definitely lends itself to that sort of cold, callous, mm -hmm. systemic, just like, oh, we're just churning out hamburger for, you know what I mean? We're a hamburger restaurant and we're just yeah. cranking this out, you know what I mean? And if you get caught in the meat grinder, then you're just another piece of meat, you know? Mm -hmm. Wow, you just came up with that <laughs> on the fly. Look at that. <laughs> Yeah, and I, and as a person who wants to do something about that, um, I'm hopefully this podcast will kind of, and it's it's going to focus on these types of um, issues as well. But I'm also, um, you know, we've primarily talked about how Black men have been affected, but there's all Black women, the LGBT community, um, there's just Indigenous peoples, um, you know, Asian immigrants, other immigrants. Um, from South America. I mean, just there's so many people that are impacted by this on a daily basis. And it's something that I have to know. I mean, I want to tell those stories. Um, I, I really feel as if they need to be heard. And that's pretty much the, the focus of um, the podcast. But we'll, you know, we'll see where it goes. Nice. Well, I definitely applaud the project. And I'm, I'm happy to support it in any way that I possibly can. And you know, Thank with you. advice and, and whatnot, but how does it feel? Like, what do you, what are your thoughts on, cause we've done probably, a, probably about at an hour and a half or so. What are your thoughts on, on do, I'm sure this is like your first, your first one, right? Ever. Yes. Um, participate thing in being, I've, I've got some equipment. I've kind of played with that a little bit, but yeah, this is definitely the first um, official podcast thing that I've done. And this has been incredible. I love discussion and I love dialogue. And I think, um, that's like storytelling. I think that's also why I enjoy writing too. Um, is I just telling those stories are so important and they're just how people can relate with one another. Um, it's how people can return to their humanity. Um, and I just think 
um, podcasting has definitely been something that's more on the modern age um, um, way of things. So I'm really interested to see how podcasting and writing and just this, um, and in fact, I've also been exploring um, just because Austin, I really, I, I love this city and I have lived here for around a year now, but I also think that there's some sort of um, numbness. There's an obliviousness to the type of racism and the systemic things we're talking about. Like we think of Austin as this wonderful, beautiful, liberal blue spot in a red state, but Austin has issues. And I think there's things um, that need to be addressed. Like how, how we're the um, fastest growing city in America, but we're the only one where our minority populations are decreasing as well. And that's a problem. That is a real problem to families and generations who've been here a long, long time. Um, so I'm very, at first I kind of thought of just doing it on not just a, a national scope, but just general stories, but I've never really thought about taking it to just an Austin local level. So um, I'm also open to to exploring that as well. Because in the book I'm reading, they actually cite... Um, a incident that happened in Austin that I had no idea that happened. Um, and so I really feel as if there's more stories that just people do not know about um, that I that deserve to be heard. I'm sure. And I think the you know, obviously, real estate being one of the primary factors mm-hmm. that's causing this sort of uh, lack of diversity in Austin. Yeah. Um, I mean, hugely, especially like places like the East Side have, you know, totally been they've been gentrified. It's, um, it's just one of those things where you see an older neighborhood that that looks like it's been there a long, long time is really withstanded, um, time. And then in the middle of that is a $2 million, $2 million super modern mansion. And I just think that's a complete lack of knowing the community you're moving into, or even trying to understand the dynamic of, of the, geography of where you are and what that means to the other people that you live around. Um, and I just think people are just just oblivious or they just don't know or they don't care. I don't really know. That's something that I also like to explore as well. Yeah, I think the demographics of Austin sort of lend themselves to, you know, it's a predominantly white city and, you know, a lot, obviously a lot of education with the university. And I guess, you know, you, if you think about it, really, there's so many educational institutions within, you know, an hour and an hour and a half. So you have a highly educated, um, populace supplying mm-hmm. the city, the university of Texas, St. Edwards, Texas state and San Marcos going, you know, San Antonio has St. Edwards, UTSA. All of that is within, you know, a few hours. at least a two-hour, yeah. you know, circumference, if you will. So that's one one thing that is pushing it. Obviously, you have, you know what I mean, a lot of economic opportunities for people like that yeah. to come in and displace people that have lived here forever. But um, kind of a side impact of all of this that I think is really interesting is the sort of lack of a hip hop scene in Austin. That's um that's really interesting that you you mentioned that. Um, I've never really take taken a, a deep dive into that, but now that you have spoken it into existence, um, that <laughs> well, I mean, other people have been like working on this, so I have some some friends that I know. Um, <clears throat> actually, I encourage you. I don't know if you're 
into hip hop very much, but uh, The Breaks is a show by a couple of guys, uh, Confucius Jones and Fresh. They do a show on KUTX. Okay. On, I think it's on Saturday nights at like 11. Um, uh, it's like 89.1. I'm sorry, guys. I'm bricking on the actual um, station number. But they're trying to, that's something that they're trying to do is kind of like get some local artists airplay and kind of build a community from the ground up mm-hmm. because that's kind of one area where I feel like I definitely agree Austin is not really serving very well. It's like the most popular music genre in the country and austin is like woefully limited you know Mm -hmm. um it's it's at least my experience so far is very dominated by um alternative or rock um some electronic as well um but that that's been my experience here and that's a really good point and i commend i commend that that's really great um i actually have my brother-in-law he's trying to do something very similar um in mobile um, him and his friends are very interested in just hip hop, rap, the culture, fashion, all the things that are into that. And so um, I think that's really cool. And I'm glad that there's people out there that care that deeply about it. And my um, rapport and my knowledge of hip hop and um, rap music has just grown um, within recently. Um, I really, I like social commentary type type rap, really. Um, I have a lot to learn, obviously. I'm definitely new to this, but it, there's just such, I have such respect for the art form, where it came from, what it does, the power that it has. Um, and I just, that's pretty incredible. Nice. Uh, so we are, we're at about an hour and a half. Do you have any, do you have anything else you want to cover today? Or um, I don't want to take up your entire afternoon. I mean, I do. I <laughs> spend so much time talking about this. Um I think the only thing that I had to touch, and this was just, I think I just shared this with you um, when we were talking about um, kind of going back to our experiences with religion, and I don't think um, just kind of another way that um, just the relationship between capitalism and individualism and this concept of punishment and just oppression and um, putting you, making you seem normal and um, putting you in these boxes, whether you want to be in them or not, and Um, Just talking about how, in general, when, you know, during colonial times and we were taking over indigenous peoples, destroying, maiming, I mean, doing just horrible things to these people. And, you know, once we had forced them into reservations and places where they did not want to live, we would, you know, take their children and and we would try to civilize. There's this idea of civilizing them and how this, this just blew my mind of just this concept um, that also came from the Christian roots of just of binary gender of male female biology this in like what femininity was and what masculinity masculinity was and what boxes those were and you couldn't escape it and if you tried to represent or sway out of those boxes you were punished but it was also a way to implement patriarchy it was a way to say you have to fit these norms now one is more important than the other now mate you know excuse me, patriarchy is more important and this is how our society is going to be set up. And the concept of femininity and um, how this is also interesting because we've been kind of focusing on um, the men's perceptions and, and experiences with this, but just how women, how our sexuality, how our fruitfulness, how our 
bearing children and, and what that means in terms of um, if we are sexually deviant, if we are seen as prostitutes, if we are seen as just, Im we're seen as immoral and we would place these um, stereotypes and these thoughts if to any other person, if you weren't white, if you were a white woman, then you, you represented purity, you represented just the perfect ideal of what being a feminine woman was, but then you were still not as good as a white man. And just that concept of using binary gender. Um, and now that we know that gender is very fluid and gender has been very fluid for a lot of societies, especially um, in indigenous populations, like there, there were several sexualities. There was it was not fluid. It was not binary. Um, it was very d based upon on you. And yeah. So yeah, I just wanted to throw that tidbit in there as well. You know, what's interesting. This makes me think of Michel Foucault, who is a very, another uh, postmodern thinker or post-structuralist, you know, it, those definitions don't necessarily work, but one of his most well-known works is a history of sexuality. And he made an argument that there used to be sexual acts like there were like there wasn't an identity necessarily mm -hmm. attached to the sex sexual acts mm -hmm. and now that has sort of changed and it's become an identity it's like you're you're a homosexual if you have sex you know what i mean if you have homosexual sex you are yeah like certain acts. as opposed to where you previously you just you could participate in whatever sexuality you wanted to but it wasn't an identity mm -hmm. as much or defined it was defined differently you know what i mean i think that's an interesting yeah. relationship yeah so if, if you do x y and z then you are this right. here's the label that you were placed on and if you deviate from this label then something's wrong with you like something yeah then something's inherently wrong with you and we have reason to punish you and we um, that's very interesting as well. And I think, um, gendered, I, I'm hesitant to call it like gender policing, but kind of like, you know, gender and, and race, these things are, are social constructs that really only were created a, maybe a few centuries ago. And that throughout the course of history, like the, this, these really are new developments and how, how we don't really know as much as we think we know. Right. I kind of, you're sort of hearkening back to, I guess, some of the enlightenment sort of thinking that has influenced our culture. I think specifically, obviously, the U.S. in particular, with figures like Thomas Jefferson and other, you know, I'm trying to think, Madison, Hamilton, you know, these are people that were influenced by enlightenment thinkers like Immanuel Kant and more particular, I guess, Jean Locke, especially the English philosopher, mm -hmm. especially. Yeah, and I, um, there's, I, I need to do more work in terms of I'm very interested in um, the founding fathers and, and their relationship with their own faith and how um, constructing whether we need to be like England and be some sort of theocracy or how we're going to ba balance this line of our society having some sort of... Um, moral compass like how obsessed how a society needing a moral compass is so important to the framework of a successful society but how we didn't want to be like england and um i think that's an interesting point that you make and how i think about when the founding of our country was happened 
you know, my husband's interests and my interests were not included. They were not, um, they were not considered. They were not. And, and what does that, what, how, do, how does that relate to now? And what does that mean too? Right. And these sort of, li- you know, ideals of liberty and freedom, but ironically not, you know what I mean? You're fighting a revolution for about, you know, supposedly taxation without representation, but yet you're, you're allowing people to own slaves and Mm -hmm. create wealth from, you know what I mean? You're stealing wealth from them. You are literally stealing and this is sanctioned by the government and the whole country was founded with this happening and occurring. You know what I mean? Just, (laughs) it's such a hypocrisy looking back on it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's, um, I just, it's, it's hard for me in, in terms of, um, I guess as an American citizen, how important it is to be patriotic. Um, and how, if you aren't on that bandwagon, there's something wrong with you or like you're a traitor, or I guess I'm being a little bit more extreme, but, um, just how, if you are against, um, just certain American ideals, then and then you're not one of us like that that concept to me is also strange as well um yeah and i just think or even the concept of you know someone who's a collegiate athlete even the concept of having the um the anthem in a sporting event like where did that even one where did that even come from why is that Uh. a moment where we need to express patriotism or why is why i guess is is my big question with that yeah that is pretty interesting how they sort of tie that in Uh. i mean there's these big displays at um you know um what am i trying to say like professional baseball games and professional football games where there's jets flying over and there's this giant flag on the field and we have hundreds of military personnel and i just when and why did a sporting event (laughs) become a way to express Patriot, and is it a way to express power? Because then I think, you know, because sports in and of itself is a way to bring people together and it's a way to bring people from other cultures and other people together. At least that's that's um, what I think the beauty of sports can be. And um, I just think that's kind of the antithesis. antithesis. I think you're, you're right on. And it's definitely the, I guess, the infiltration of capitalist ideology into all phases of our lives and it it really seeps into everything and sort of this yeah instilling that sort of patriotic i don't know it's kind of like it's a fervor it's like it's it's a it's almost cultural but i i don't know i would only attribute it to being like white culture i if that that's not even really a thing it's you know the concept of whiteness is more of a, a hierarchy and in um, position of power type thing but that's something i would like to unpack in the future um is just where that came from too um because i I've, I've never identified with i never really understood why in texas i had to pledge allegiance to the <laughs> texas flag i don't i i don't know it's just or even when um you know, people on our soccer team from other countries had to come and, you know, we, they were never forced to say it or anything, but they still had to like stand attention and like, look at this flag. I'm like, you don't have to pledge allegiance to anything. Like why that's not, I don't know. And how funny too, that they added under God, like Mm -hmm. in the fifties to the pledge. 
Yeah. So that was very interesting. Yeah. And that's a whole other thing too, is even mentions just kind of the disagreement of God, of just the concept of God and what that's supposed to mean, whether it's supposed to mean the Judeo-Christian God or whether it's supposed to mean just a broad context of whatever you believe. And that is such a debate. There are people who just think that the constitution and all of that was founded under Christian ideals. And I think there's an influence for sure, but I don't, it's kind of, it's meat in the middle. It's not total. I don't think it's on the side of just completely, I guess, secular, just totally outside of, um, because there is a concept of thinking for yourself and not wanting to be like England, but there's also like, in order to be a successful society, you have to have some sort of moral framework. So it's okay if this, stands or is a part of it but kind of balancing this relationship between the two is i think something that's pretty incredible that the founding fathers did i think the the worst thing about the founding fathers and the constitution is how it's sort of revered in this really bizarre like it is some type of religious document and these men are completely infallible like you know what i mean they're so lionized and oh like oh the it's this perfect document from these genius people that had no, you know what I mean? It's, it's sort of ridiculous how the founding fathers are presented to us as just like, oh, the, you know, they, they were, they fucking owned slaves, like George Washington, Jefferson, obviously not the only ones, but obviously the first two that come to mind. And of course, Jefferson could read, you know, people like Locke and and so forth because he had he didn't have to fucking work because he had slaves out there, you know what I mean, doing the work. So he could spend his days reading and thinking and blah, 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 you know what I mean? Yeah. Coming up with all men are created equal. Well, you know, except for except for yeah. like these millions and millions of people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Essentially. And and what and I just I'm interested in the relationship between that and what our society is now and how that document's interpreted now and just the debate that's behind that. And I just think that's a lot. That's a lot to unpack. That's a lot to think about. Um, and it's not fun. That is not something that I would, I would enjoy doing. Um, cause I'm definitely more on the side of things need to evolve and things need to grow and shape and apply. Um, but definitely there's not, there's some opposition to that as well. It's interesting, too, because words themselves evolve and there can be, you know, obviously we started out the whole conversation today with how words can get misinterpreted or they, you know what I mean? There can be one word can have multiple interpretations and neither one of them or doesn't necessarily mean that there's a wrong interpretation. Like there's, yeah, you're never going to be able to get to that sort of bottom, like this is what this word means forever and always yeah and we're also you know language means a lot but we're also limited by it like our our voice and and the words that we use to describe a feeling or a concept we're, we're very limited to that as well um i know this is kind of a um an idea that i've been introduced by but just referring to god as he um and what that has also played into in terms of patriarchy and how um you know traditional male female roles and the relationship between what a woman has with god and a man has with god and what calling him he is right and so that's a concept that um i actually would played around with with um listening to um a podcast that i know um there's a guy his name is michael gunger 
Um, he was previously a very well-known Christian artist, um, musician, and, and singer. Um, but he kind of went this way where he went to Buddhism. And like through Buddhism, he found Jesus and kind of came back. And him and this other guy, I don't even know his real name. They call him Science Mike. Um, but they, <laughs> It's a good name. Yeah. I like it. Oh, they're great. And um, they're, it's the Liturgist podcast. And Oh, I've heard of this, actually. Oh, my gosh. it's I've seen this. I think they were they might have been tackling some kind of postmodern thought yes. or thinker. Sometimes possibly. It, yeah, sometimes they go a little, like, way deep, and I kind of get a little lost. Um, but definitely the last episode I had listened to was talking about the concept of referring to God as a he and how limited that is because it's, it's a, it's by language. Like we're literally putting, if we're saying this infinite, all, excuse me. Yeah. Infinite, all knowing all everything God into like this little human created word. Um, and they actually did some praise and worship songs using it instead of he, and it changed your whole relationship with the song and how you worshiped. And, um, I, that's just something that is really interesting as well. And, and how, you know, more like colonialism and just talking about patriarchy and how those pronouns were used to tell like, this is your place. This is where you need to be the man, the man's head of household, that type of thing. So the man upstairs. Yes. Is that, yeah. And, um, how your experience with a God that is a man may inter may elicit more, feelings of power and judgment right, yeah, exactly. and how if you a relationship with a with a she is a god is more more loving more benevol benevolent more um caring and that type of thing and yeah that, that relationship as well it definitely instills a whole different set of characteristics for sure in turn yeah that's interesting yeah even today um when i did go to church i kind of counted how many times he was said and I tried to replace it with it <laughs> and it, it really did it it changed my whole relationship with the worship song and it just um it's something I'm kind of playing with and seeing but that's also um something that I like to think about too also even just the you know kind of stepping aside or corollary adjacent to this is like the depictions of Christ are always mm -hmm. like a, a white male and he's always ripped just so he's like got <laughs> mad at like he's lean he's lean as fuck. <laughs> yeah it just like the the blonde hair blue eyes big chin i i you know right perfectly cropped beard yes obviously that is <laughs> and <tough>. those abs <laughs> he yeah. gets them from hanging up oh no that's kind of sacrilegious sorry i don't want to <laughs> that is not nice but it's okay um i yeah that's, that's kind of fucked up i'm sorry it's okay. You're forgiven. <laughs> You're forgiven. Um, I, that's, yeah. Um, I definitely have come across several images of just that like white man picturesque of what God's supposed to look like. And it's like, well, all of these, um, you know, Muslims and um, people from the Middle East that <laughs> that you fear so much, like that's who he looked like. Right. It's that's like, essentially what, what he was, what he looked like. And, you know... Jesus would probably be a, f a refugee that was banned by Trump. Yeah. That would be the great irony of it all. Yeah. And I've, um, I follow a few pastors that have written pieces on that. Um, oh gosh, I'm probably going to butcher his name. His name's John Pavlovitz. Totally butcher his name. Um, it's John, his last name starts with a P. Um, but he's written several pieces on how Jesus just 
in this day and age would have never been able to reach the people that he could. He would have never been right. able to come over here, but we're apparently we're God's country, right? We're, right. The, we're the promised land, we're, um, which just is not. I feel like we'd crucify him if we're kind of, I mean, we were sort of analogous to Rome, so I think that, you know what I mean? I think we would definitely crucify him. I recall, you know what I mean? All the things that he advocated would be, you know what I mean? He'd be like a ostracized as a as a communist or something. Yeah. And yeah, I I have nothing other to say to say <laughs> than just yes, like that's that's um absolutely true and um th- these types of things this type of hypocrisy really I try to remind myself that this is this is human work and this is human ideas and and it's humanity. It's not the the God and the Jesus that I, I love and have a relationship with. And um, it's something I talk to him about. And it's something that I just, he knows that makes me so upset. And um, I just, it's something that I, that I keep aware of. But at the same time, we're talking about not to feel so righteous that we think and feel this, these things that I'm above other people that right. are. And so it's this, this great struggle, like internal struggle and balance through day-to-day life. Man, we get, we'll have to do at some point a whole episode on religion, and I'll have to figure out how to do it without because I, I'll, I'll be quite honest. I do, you know, I have an antagonism, with especially towards Christianity. Just like there's a lot of personal resentment, not not necessarily directed at at large, but sort of just my upbringing mm-hmm. and the the environment I was exposed to, and all the like. There's a lot of feelings and and things and yeah that are sort of wrapped up in that you know what i mean so i i want to be fair as well but there's i don't there's i feel like there's so many opportunities to have a really interesting discussion because i think that at least your attitude seems to be one that i can you know what i mean i can i can get down with yeah I'm, more so than like the judge you know what i mean because like the the vision of like the the stereotype of kind of the judgmental mm-hmm. person that doesn't realize they're, you know, that lacks self-awareness and, you know what I mean? So much of that is prevalent, I think. Yeah, and I try to, just several things when it comes to doubt, when it, like I absolutely have doubt. I absolutely have questions that I wrestle with, but I think that's a part of the great journey. And I think it's part of having a relationship with the deity. And I just... um I also always want to come in with like, I also think um, sometimes in churches and just kind of this, this space and this atmosphere is always like, oh, it's, here's the problem with our culture and it's them that's the problem. And, and we're here and we're the kingdom of God. And I'm like, no, like there's a reason why people have so much resentment. There's a people, excuse me, there's a reason why people have such hostile ideas about us. It's like, because we've done really awful things to people. And I think we have to get on people's level. We have to go down. We have to go through the mud. We have like true, true evangelism, true discipleship is having relationships with people, um, getting to know them intimately. And so I never steer away from, because some, some of your doubts, I guarantee are some of mine too. And I guarantee like there's a way to have a conversation about that. Um, But I think sometimes just kind of the modern church struggles with, pointing the eyes back, pointing the finger back and things like, like, like self-analyzing. Um, and that's something that I, that I struggle with too. And not just 
my relationship with Jesus, but also my relationship with churches and other believers as well. Because um, I know I know several people that would be pretty shocked if they if they heard what I'm saying right now. <laughs> um, and that's not good either, you know. Um, I've definitely had my fair share of of judgment from those that are within too. And but I also have to remember, like, just because we are believers, we are not perfect. We are right. not. We have we have this standard that we that we want to live to, but we like we make mistakes, and we are influenced by our how we grew up and other people, and so I have to take myself off the high horse as well. Right on. I think that's that might be the biggest lesson is like have be be humble, have humility, um, even in the context of you know the discussion we had to start us off about about using schizoid in the title of the podcast. It's like, I feel like maybe I got on my high horse or feeling elevated above others by being righteous in terms of social justice. You know what I mean? I think that's absolutely as something, you know, that was definitely part of, of the negative feelings that I got was like, Oh, yeah. I was, I was righteous. I was pure. You know what I mean? And in, mm-hmm. in, in, in a sense with yeah. that. Yeah. And then, just to pull something, and I like I said, I could talk about this for hours and hours, <laughs> but like um, when I, I've become more sensitive to um, like racialized jokes and, and things just because I know how they affect my husband's day-to-day life. Um, because sometimes you not having ill meaning behind something, it like the person will still hurt. Right. Um, and that's also important to think of as well. Um, and so that... You could also, I mean, I don't know if you have this door open still to this person, but talking about it, be like, this is great feedback. I would love to know why or where, how could I improve or like, I don't know, just open up that conversation. I don't know if that would be possible or whatever your relationship is. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm like, uh, I'm honestly, I kind of feel humiliated a little bit or like embarrassed or some mixture of those two emotions about it where it's like i i didn't respond and i haven't and I, I don't know that i'm going to like i said it just feels i don't know it feels weird yeah because <laughs> i don't want to be defensive at the same time i don't want to also be you know like man you know kind of explaining it to yeah. <laughs> the element of like oh well here's this th- these are the reasons yeah. why yeah, your why your opinion is wrong yeah. And I have, you know what I mean? So uh, it's such a weird place to be in. It made me, made me feel like crap, honestly. Ugh. I kind of, I mean, I questioned the whole, whether I should even be doing a podcast, to be oh. honest. I was just like, what, uh, what am I doing? Like, what is life? Is, what am I, what, <laughs> why am I here? Yeah, well, I, there's just several different ways you can go with this. Like I said, I offer no help because <laughs> all I do is just contemplate all sides and then spew out information about all sides um pros and cons list i don't know (laughs) um i just because moving forward this just tells you what type of relationship and interaction others might have um and maybe there's a platform to be more on to be more transparent and authentic about why you chose that right um and where that stems from and why you identify with that and and I think that could offer some more closure, but you know, there's not not everyone is gonna be for your podcast, right? right. Like not yeah. everyone's gonna. You're not gonna be everyone's cup of tea. Right. Exactly. That's true. And I feel like the 
the people that are going to, I mean, it's an, un, I, I still, I will say that I, I feel like it is an uncharitable reading. And I think I said that earlier, but I think it's a very uncharitable reading. And I don't think a lot of people are going to read it in the way that this is sort of ableist language anyways. Um, so I don't know, I'm sort of leaning towards keeping it, staying, staying schizoid because that just feels right. It feels like, like I said, it's the ethos of the whole, the whole project. Yeah. And it's also, you know, where the name stemmed from was the name of the song and whether, um, is, it sounds like that group was pretty revolutionary in their thinking and they ruffled some feathers with that name and their ideas and, you know, sometimes, sometimes that's what it takes. Eventually, I'm going to definitely do a reading on those books too, like the uh, Deleuze and Watari. Yeah. Um, their two books, Anti Oedipus and A Thousand Plateaus, which I definitely, these are crazy, uh, very difficult reads mm-hmm. because they, so I think even it was. Deleuze or Watari, one of them actually created, there's schizoanalysis is kind of what they call it. And that's sort of what they use, like drawing on all these different sort of ideas and ontological approaches and psycho psychoanalysis mixed with semiotics and, and what have you, and sort of tackling meaning and, and philosophy and all of this from many different angles and approaches. Yeah whoa <laughs> that's a lot that is uncharted territory for me but that sounds really interesting so so fascinating yeah. i love i love the postmodern stuff just really really hits strikes a nerve with me i don't know what it what it is but yeah we just have like why do prisons and prison psychology strike my nerve i, I don't know but they do and they have i've always um we've that's all that's all tied in too because also uh I mentioned him earlier, but Michel Foucault has another book, Discipline and Punish. Hmm. Uh, you should, you'll have to read that too. That's it. That may I'm be, just writing a list. That's maybe, <laughs> that might be the most relevant as well. Cool. <laughs> like I said, I just, I have all of these things, all this material that I get to go back with. Um, that sounds, and I just, yeah, just the concept of punishment and all of that. Yeah, main main less just be humble, Pete. Just be like, <laughs> right? Oh my gosh, that is what we'll leave you with today. Yeah. Be humble. Yes, you know <laughs> Too bad I can't just have uh, Kendrick Lamar humble was, play right I just was, to close like, us out. Who is that guy that has the song? <laughs> help. Thank you, thank you for thinking of who that was. Yeah. All right, well, fans, we are going to sign off for this week. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Sarah. <laughs>